Welcome to the DTB podcast for September 2016, volume 54, number nine. My name is David Fizakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm editor-in-chief. In 2014, we published a review of the drug Nalmaphene and its role in managing alcohol dependence. In our editorial this month, we revisit the drug and its use in the UK. Perhaps we should go back and remind ourselves of what Nalmaphene is and what it's licensed for. Yes, so Nalmaphene is an opioid modulator. As you say, it's been available in the UK as a licensed product since 2013. And the idea behind it is it's used in patients uh, with alcohol dependence as a way of controlling their alcohol use. So what did we say about it in 2014? So it's it's a complicated issue because the licence required there to be not only the ability to prescribe the drug but also to offer psychosocial uh, support for these patients. And at the time there were some concerns that the overall benefit of this drug was very slight. So what's happened since then? Well, interestingly enough, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, produced a technical appraisal in November 2014, so about a, a year or so after it was initially licensed. And that saw quite a jump uh, in the use of this drug, about a five-fold increase, in fact, throughout England in its use. So NICE have approved it for England. The other bodies have approved it for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, well, Wales would follow the NICE guidance anyway, but Scotland and Northern Ireland have approved it. Exactly. And so now we're talking about probably £20,000 a month being spent by the NHS on this drug uh, throughout England. So what's driven our concerns that we've decided to go back and talk about it again? Well, we didn't feel we could recommend it then. And since that, we've had some um, research or some articles uh, published by three researchers who've highlighted a whole series of dilemmas they have around the approval and the licensing of this drug. So they've noted, for example, that none of the studies that were used to license the product actually included the targeted population that the drug was subsequently licensed for. And in addition, none of the drugs, uh, sorry, none of the um, current drugs we use for alcohol abuse were compared with nalmaphene, things like uh, naltroxone. So we have a drug that um, doesn't seem to fit the population where whose research database doesn't fit the population that we are using it on, and we've got no comparative data with other drugs. So three sets of um, independent researchers are all coming up with the same set of concerns. So what do we think should happen? Well, I think we're just thinking, you know, given the constraints the NHS is under, given the constraints uh, for many GPs in their ability to prescribe simple things, be it um, gluten-free products or analgesia, antihistamines, it seems incongruous that we are currently licensed and, and paying for a drug where the evidence is so slight so our feeling is basically we should not be using this drug. So time for the advisory bodies to go back and look at it again. Well, exactly. Whether that's, of course, possible or not is, is a difficult one. OK, thank you very much. And our first main article this month looks at the management of hydrogenitis suppurativa, 
What is this condition? So this is a, a condition of the pilosebaceous unit where you get inflammation in particularly areas which have apocrine glands, so axillae typically or inguinal reason, and sometimes other areas such as the anogenital area or the inner thigh. And, and classically what happens, people present with often hard, infected little sores which can weep and become turn into abscesses or even little sinuses and hydradenitis suppurativa is a condition that affects probably about one percent of people prevalence about one percent more common in women and it can be a, a pretty devastating condition it can affect them with pain and discharge and that can have an impact on how they feel about themselves and uh, their general well-being so what do we cover in this particular article so what we've done is we've looked at the management of this condition. We've looked at some of the lifestyle issues that we need to address. This seems to be an association with this and obesity and smoking. There may or may not be an underlying hormonal element um, or even an issue with regard to metabolic syndrome. Um, so lifestyle does play a part as the first line treatment, things like um, weight uh, reduction, uh, smoking cessation. There's also an increased risk of cardiovascular disease in patients with hydradenitis suppurativa. And then we look at first-line treatments, um, which the interesting thing about all this is actually there's been no UK guidelines for the management of this condition. So we've looked at the European guidelines and also what tends to be used in this country. So first-line, it's um, clindamycin topically or a tetracycline orally, and then looking at uh, more complex drugs, second and third line. But overall, as you suggested, it's poorly served by evidence. There's not a lot to guide what people do. Absolutely. And when we were looking at the evidence for all the different treatment modalities, what we found was that very often we're talking about perhaps one small randomised trial, perhaps 25 patients with a 16-week duration of the study. And this is a chronic condition. So even if you can demonstrate some improvement over placebo over 12 weeks, but then the question is, you know, how long can people stay on these treatments and uh, what's the long-term benefit? So one issue we highlight is the licensing of a drug specifically for this condition. Adilimumab has recently been approved. So this is another TNF-alpha inhibitor finding a role in an interesting area. And it, in fact, it is one of the few licensed drugs we have for hydradenitis suppurativa. But given its nature, it's specialist only and needs to be, I mean, there is nice guidance on it. There's all kinds of issues. You're right, it, it's supported, but this is really for um, severe cases of hydradenitis suppurativa that haven't responded to current treatment. It costs about £4,000 for a 12-week course. So this is really super specialist area and not something that GPs will be uh, using anytime soon. But what it seems overall is that there's an absence of a treatment path, a recognised treatment pathway for people with this condition and a lack of national guidance. This is it. And I think I think w what we say in our article is, you know, first line topical clindamycin or, to or oral tetracyclines. And then if you're not winning at that point, it's going to be a case of thinking about asking for specialist intervention and help. And many of the drugs that fall in that in-between category between the antibiotics and the MAB are drugs that do need very specialist monitoring as well. This is it, and, and, and most of them are also unlicensed as well. So they are, it is important that you get specialist advice. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month discusses observational studies. 
So what do we cover in this one? So this is just, we thought it'd be sensible to look at just a sort of general overview of observational studies, just to remind ourselves of um, what we mean by observational studies and also look at their um, strengths and weaknesses. As I think, um, I think very often they're always considered to be slightly less good, if you like, than randomised control trials, but they do have a very distinct place in evidence-based medicine and in our um, use and uh, in the evidence we gain around uh, therapeutics. And examples of the types of observational studies that we cover? Yeah, so we, we look at the three big studies, so the, obviously a cohort study which can be prospective and look forward and of course the classic examples of that are the, are the million women study that's been going on now for decades. These are huge, expensive but uh, very useful studies looking prospectively forwards. Obviously you can do retrospective cohort studies as well. Then you have case control studies where um, in these particularly more helpful with rare conditions you take a case of something that you want to look at and you um, compare it with a control which doesn't have that condition. So that's case control studies. And then we look at uh, cross-sectional studies or what we might consider to be survey studies where you take a, a group of people and you simply, through a survey, get an understanding of uh, the situation. Surveys, obviously, cross-sectional studies are cheap to do and but aren't very good at looking at rare things because you're unlikely to pick them up in, in your survey. I think one of the things that's, that's interesting about this is the development of what we call secondary data. So we now have these fabulous data sets from places like census data, mortality data from the Office of Population Census and Surveys, and GP clinical data now. And obviously you're getting um, big studies now which take this huge amounts of data and, and crunch it and develop useful things. And of course, the typical example of that is the whole set of Q interventions, things like Q-Risk and Q-Cancer, Q-Intervention, all those from uh, Nottingham have, are based on primary care-based data that's been crunched and then developed into algorithms which help us then look at conditions in primary care. But part of our caveats around this are some of the limitations and how far you can go with extrapolating from, from the, these sort of studies and concerns that perhaps with large databases, you might go on and on analysing Well, absolutely right. The, the risk here, of course, is first of all, data may be incomplete. And of course, the problem with primary care data is it may be totally skewed by what the GP wants to get out of it, which may be around what he gets paid. So he may be recording things more than others, not because he's seeing more of them, but because he needs to record those because he then gets paid. And, and likewise, you can get this data churning where you just keep looking at the data and keep looking at it until you find an association uh, which you can then publish. So there are obviously um, uh, dangers and disadvantages of, of these sorts of studies, um, but they certainly have a place in um, evidence-based medicine. And randomised controlled trials, which obviously we feature regularly with our reviews of, of new drugs and, and other, other treatments, their place, they're not dead. Good Lord not, no. And then of course, you know, the great thing about an RCT properly uh, designed is that all those biases, variables that you both know about and don't know about are all balanced out by the fact that you randomise patients. So they still have an enormous advantage over any other sort of study. But they are expensive to do. And of course, so often as well, the exclusions that you have to undertake when you're doing an RCT can have an impact on how much then that 
the result of that um, RCT actually reflects your patient population, be we, you know, with comorbidities and other problems like that. So helpful to balance up kind of the, the pros and cons of, of both sorts of research and then understand when you're reading a paper what the limitations are. Absolutely, and I think this is where I'd, I'd like to think this is a, a really useful article for people because you, we, you know, we do this all the time, but sometimes we forget the, the little nuances, and this is a really good way of um, jenning up on that and just reminding ourselves about the differences. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, to read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or observations, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much.